What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. All right. Well, welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We have a very special guest. We rehearsed to say her last name, so we didn't butcher it about four times. So, you know, that's how we like to do it here on All The Smoke. Dr. Fundero, um, I honestly, you know, I've been following you for a little bit on Instagram and, you know, I've learned a lot with, you know, the gut microbiome and things of that nature with the GI health, but definitely wanted to have you on because that's a very common question. I feel like I get from a lot of my clients, Hey, um, I'm not responsive. Maybe it's my gut and how can I fix my gut? Um, so if you don't mind for our listeners that don't know who you are, could you please introduce yourself? Fair thing. Um, so I am on Instagram and Facebook as vitamin PhD, otherwise known as Gabrielle. I have my bachelor's in exercise, sport and health ed, and my PhD in human nutrition, foods and exercise. And the specific topic area was on the role of probiotic supplementation uh, in high fat feeding in terms of its potential protection against metabolic dysregulation that comes with uh, overfeeding on a, you know, super high fat diet, 60% calories from fat and the majority from saturated fat. And uh, found my way into the science communication realm of Instagram through just a few serendipitous events that brought me from academia and teaching as a professor to coaching with Renaissance periodization and now owning my own business uh, as a, a telehealth lifestyle coach and uh, writer for examine. Gotcha. So you, you seem like you got a holistic things of kind of getting going on. So are you currently still conducting research? I know previously before we hit the record button, you were um, saying something about Tennessee. If you are, what are those topics still going on that you're working on? Yeah. So I actually am collaborating uh, with Dr. Jeremy Townsend out of Lipscomb University. I met him at an ISSN conference a couple years ago, and he was presenting his research on probiotic supplementation in athletes. And uh, I just started chatting with him about it. And I thought, you know, this would be a really great way to collaborate. At the time, I was still coaching with Renaissance Periodization, and they really uh, are supportive of research endeavors. So they, you know, can provide funding. And uh, I spoke with him, I spoke with Nick and Mike, and uh, we ended up collaborating. So they did provide uh, really generous funding for him. And we designed a study that is looking at some gender specific differences in the gut microbiomes of resistance trained uh, college athletes. And then we're also trying to parse out the relationships between their microbiome uh, their GI distress after an intense resistance training bout, and then markers of intestinal permeability and fecal short chain fatty acids. Gotcha. So we've said gut microbiome about maybe 20 times already, but <laughs> could you do us a favor and our listeners a favor? Could you explain actually what the gut microbiome is and how it could be used as an indicator of being healthy or unhealthy? Sure, sure. I think we just like, we created a drinking game just now. Like every time we say gut microbiome, <laughs> Honestly, yes. Listen, guys, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in for the night, go grab a beer. And every single time we say gut microbiome, you have to drink until you hear it again. Okay. <laughs> Let's begin. 
Oh, um, so we, and we can talk about, you know, the effects of alcohol on the gut too. Um, so, so the gut microbiome refers to both the microbiota or the microorganisms that reside in your digestive tract and all of their genetic material. So we've got who's there, the microbiota, and then what they're doing, their genes. So when we talk about gut microbiome diversity, Quite often, we're talking about the organisms there. We're talking about it from a taxonomic standpoint. So we're looking at the uh, number of different species, so the richness, and then also the relative abundance or the proportions of those species. But we can also look at the functional diversity. So that's the, the abundance and, 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 and variety of genes present. That kind of gives us a better idea of what your gut microbiome can actually do for you. And the way that we can potentially, um, I, I don't want to say uh, like look at direct cause and, and effect relationships, but um, look for maybe markers of disease and pyto or, or health would be looking at, at things like metabolites or postbiotics. So we can sometimes draw correlations between some of the things that the microbes are producing and then an increased risk of colorectal cancer, for example. So things like something like P-Cresol, that's been associated with um, increased risk of colorectal cancer. Or something like TMAO is a marker for cardiovascular disease. Now it's not so simple because uh, people who eat a lot of fish will also have high levels of TMAO and fish intake is not associated with cardiovascular disease. So we have to keep in mind that when we're looking at markers of disease or health, we're actually looking at an entire ecosystem. So it's an abundance of different microbes, not just bacteria, but also uh, fungi and archaea and viruses. And they're all affecting and influencing each other. They're competing for real estate. They're competing for nutrients. So if you have, for example, two microbes that wanna occupy the same niche, they both wanna live in the same place and they both wanna eat the same food, means one's gonna go up and the other one's gonna come down. So there's not really a way for us to control all of the variables there. So the best thing that we can do right now is take a bunch of people who have the same disease, sequence their microbiome, take a bunch of people who don't have that disease, sequence their microbiomes, and then see what are the shared versus unique characteristics. Because we're gonna have a lot of stuff that we have just because we're humans or just because we're omnivores or vegetarians. And then there might be some differences that are unique to the people who have a disease, but we still can't determine whether it's a cause or effect relationship with the, with the disease or whether those microbes are inherently harmful, because that could be just that person's best option of microbiome available in their disease state. I mean, I, I would assume that after someone is either diagnosed or they find out something like this, that their diet likely changes a lot, regardless if they want it to or not. They're going to get more stress. They'll start eating less. They'll take out foods. They'll add foods because they're like, oh, now I need to get really healthy. So how, what is that process like in the process of disease? Like, is, is that able to, I guess, is the gut microbiome able to help how someone feels with a disease or help like... I guess I don't really even know the question to ask. That's, I know what question you're trying to ask. And that's kind of the question that researchers are trying to answer, right? Like, 
can we influence the gut microbiome in such a way that we directly affect a person's health or disease status? You know, that's kind of what people want to know when they're like, can I, how do I improve my gut health? They're sort of assuming that maybe something's wrong with their gut health that, or their gut microbiome that's leading to some problem. And then can we manipulate it in some way to help us feel better? Uh, and the answer is the things that we do that are associated with microbial diversity and resilience and like general positive characteristics are also good for human health in general. So things like eating a varied diet that's high in plant matter, getting adequate fiber, engaging in regular physical activity, um, you know, having some semblance of sleep hygiene and, and um, I mean, in general hygiene, <laughs> you know, trying try not to get infected with, in, with other things like uh, COVID or gastrointestinal disease. Those things are supportive of a diverse microbiome. So that means there's a lot of different organisms there, a lot of genetic diversity, and also a useful amount of redundancy. So even if we do lose a group of organisms to, you know, we're taking antibiotics or we get sick or something, another group can step in with similar functions. So we maintain the overall functionality of the microbiome. And what we tend to see in individuals with diseases, uh, especially gastrointestinal diseases or in individuals with, who um, have obesity or are eating a standard American diet devoid of fiber or deficient in fiber, is that even if we don't see significant changes in who's there, we tend to see a reduction in the functionality. So who's there uh, might be changed in ways that are not super helpful, but also they just don't have the same diversity of function. So there might not be the same level of resiliency. And when we do see changes in who's there, what we tend to see is either a, a loss of the beneficial microbes, the ones that are creating things like butyrate for us, uh, the ones that are helping to compete, you know, outcompete pathogens. So those levels are a little bit lower and then we see higher than expected numbers of potential pathogens. So they're opportunistic. They're kind of waiting until they have a, a high enough abundance that they can overcome the host immune defense and outcompete other microbes and then cause illness. So indirectly, yes, we can influence the microbiome and support our health, but it's not a precision type of change. Now, are all the things you just mentioned, and I'll summarize just some ones that come back up to mind, mm -hmm. are these things, things that can help improve someone's microbiome gut health, like sleeping better, uh, getting a variety of foods, eating more fiber, um, keeping up on your hygiene, trying to avoid illnesses? Are, all, are these all things that can improve gut health or is there, there other things that might be more beneficial or things that might, that might need to take priority? Hmm. I guess we should probably like define what gut health means. Yeah, that too. Like I, I <laughs> yeah. guess, I guess there's discrepancies there that I'm not aware of either. Yeah. Yeah. Because gut health can mean a lot of different things and also sort of nothing. It's not a term that's used in the literature. So when you're like reading papers on the gut microbiome, people don't say like gut health because okay. it, it's kind of can be a buzzword marketing term and there's not one clear definition. So in my attempt to um, communicate the literature and make things useful for people, I kind of came up with 
uh, a working definition of gut health. And my three Ds of gut health would be diversity, disease, and digestion. So diversity refers to, as I mentioned, the uh, richness and, and proportions of microbial organisms in your gut, and then also the uh, variability of genes, meaning the overall functional capacity. So that's diversity. And then disease. So either the absence of or management of uh, a disease, and there are two different types of diseases. We have organic diseases, which actually affect the tissues, like ulcerative colitis. And then we have functional diseases wherein the tissues look normal, but the function is abnormal, like with irritable bowel syndrome. And then digestion. So we are effectively breaking down and absorbing, assimilating the nutrients that we would be able to as humans. And then the remnants, the things that we can't digest, like dietary fibers, pass through to the large intestine. And they're metabolized by the bacteria and other organisms there who produce hopefully mostly beneficial postbiotics for us or you know, potentially harmful things in very small amounts and that we feel comfortable with the digestion. We're not feeling super gassy and bloated. We have a bowel movement anywhere from three times a day to three times a week. And uh, you know, we are absorbing all of the nutrients that we need in whatever energy balance required for human health. So those are sort of my three Ds. So all of the things that you listed would, I would, I, I would say confidently support that to, for the most part. Now we don't know the cause of inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, you know, we don't, we can't completely prevent uh, colorectal cancer. So still, of course, we could have the, the, um, you know, propensity towards certain diseases, but we can, to the best of our ability try to, to prevent those or to manage them if they do come up. So I just want to ask a question on something you stated. Uh, IBS is not something that has an established cause yet. That's right. Yeah. So then this is actually very intriguing because uh, I was under the other impression and obviously I don't know much about it, so I wouldn't speak on it to begin with, mm -hmm. but what do you make it out to people that are taking advantage of like, oh, we can cure this or fix this when they don't actually know the issue to begin with? I think that's, or I would also want to step in and ask a question. So what is your thoughts on just the elimination diet to address mm -hmm. that problem? Yeah. You know, I think um, I try to maintain a charitable perspective Shout out to Eric Helms, because um, he's a, an awesome person and a great mentor to me. And he really helps with this, that um, people who claim to have solutions to either real or imagined problems, uh, or that they are claiming to be able to diagnose or cure things that, that uh, are incurable or have no known cause. I want to believe that they are really trying to help people and that they're probably doing their best. That being said, they may be coming from a place of misinformation or even disinformation, and maybe they are trying to uh, capitalize on people's discomfort and reduce quality of life. Uh, so to those people, I say, I don't think that that's an ethical thing to do, and I wish you would stop, <laughs> but, um, but when it comes to evidence-based 
ways of managing some of the symptoms, elimination diets uh, can be effective. Now, they're not meant to be long-term, and I think that's something that um, people skip over. You know, they, they kind of like eliminate and eliminate and eliminate, and then they're left eating like five foods for the rest of their lives. Right, exactly. Uh, or, you know, low FODMAP rather than becoming, rather than being a, a, a systematic elimination testing and reintroduction becomes just a lifelong, um, you know, dietary habit, a dietary pattern. And that can be problematic because when we think about uh, our, our gut microbiome as a whole ecosystem. Think of it like a giant fish tank and you've got a bunch of different fish in there and you don't know exactly which fish likes which type of food, um, but you're, you're just gonna go with just one food. It's like the cheapest food and um, you know, so you just dump that in there every day or every other day for a few weeks. You kind of notice that like, okay, some of your fish colonies are really thriving. And then there's kind of a reduction in other fish colonies. And then one day you come in and you see that some of your fish are like killing off other fish because they're competing for food. And now you've got fish that are eating the other fish. And instead of having this beautiful vibrant fish tank, you're left with just two big schools. And that's kind of what can happen to your microbiome or any ecosystem over time that's starved for uh, nutrients. So what happens in your gut is that some of those microbes, when they are, uh, when they don't have access to a dietary source of carbohydrate, they start to break down your protective mucus lining. So you have in the large intestine, a bilayer of mucus, the innermost layer close to the center of your gut has bacteria in it. That's totally normal and other microbes too. But the layer that sits against your intestinal cells is intended to be sterile. And it serves as a physical barrier between the lumen of your intestines, which is technically external to your body, and your uh, and, and your circulatory system and your lymph system. Now you do have immune cells that hang out right under your intestinal cells and they're kind of sampling things and seeing what's going on. And one theory is that uh, we have some perturbation to the gut microbiome that leads to the thinning of the mucus layer and perhaps some. Uh, intestinal permeability or space between the intestinal cells. And now you get an unusual amount of interaction between your immune cells and the contents within your gut, uh, whether it's the bacteria or other microbes or things that you've ingested. And uh, that's one theory behind uh, the pathology of, of some diseases. We don't have like a cause and effect relationship established there, but to rewind back, and think about like what makes sense for taking care of your intestines, uh, or excuse me, of your gut microbiome, this is getting really rambling, is that we wanna support that diverse ecosystem. So an elimination diet that's intended to help you feel better, but you take it out forever, or you do something like the carnivore diet, or you're eating only five foods, you may be doing harm long-term, because you haven't taken the next step of, okay, how can I get back to normal way of life? How can I provide my gut microbiome with a variety of different nutrients? So this highlights the disparity between how we're feeling versus what's going on with our gut microbiome. So the way that we feel for having uncomfortable digestion or for having comfortable digestion, that's really not telling us anything about the gut microbiome itself. So I feel like that's really interesting. Like, so you could actually ingest something 
and feel maybe bloated or nasty, but it has no correlation to what's actually going on within yourself. Yep. Yeah. Those microbes are just having a normal meal. They're fermenting it like they do to produce energy, to produce ATP for themselves. And the byproducts of that would be either short chain fatty acids. And from what we can tell so far, butyrate and propionate are pretty cool to have around, or they might be producing gases, methane, not a big deal. Hydrogen, not a big deal. Hydrogen sulfide, not great. That's more on the amino acid fermentation side of things. Gives you some smelly gas, but you know, that's just normal. There's, they're, they're functioning normally and it's uncomfortable for us, but it's not that we have damaged our gut microbiome or our intestinal lining. Now, not to say that bloating and bowel irregularities are never an issue, never indicative of something problematic, but we've created this idea of like good and bad gut health completely made up. we completely fabricated this problem so we can sell solutions. So, so the bloatingness from me eating dairy, I, I should start eating dairy and enjoying it again and just keep farting. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think it wasn't it Benjamin Franklin that said fart proudly, like better out than in. Um, it was, it was a sign of having a, a really enjoyed your meal with a, you know, a, a compliment to your host. All right. Well, um, this, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> now, so if you're lactose intolerant, that means that you don't have the digestive enzyme to break down lactose and dairy. So the bacteria instead are metabolizing that and they can do so pretty quickly. And that leads to a lot of gas and bloating, um, uh, you know, and, and bowel urgency. So it can be really unpleasant and, you know, certainly could impede nutrient absorption. If you're like super lactose intolerant and you're eating a ton of it, and then you have continuous loose stool, that could be problematic. I guess but, this, this is sort of off the wall too, is the, yeah. there's something that I've keep hearing nonstop and I've tried mm -hmm. looking into research on it to find any type of information. And I don't know if it's just not out there or if I'm just not looking up the right scientific terms, but does uh, lactase pills, does that lead to cancer or is that a bad thing? Wow, that is not one that I've heard yet. So See, thank you for introducing me to that. <laughs> yeah, like two or three people that have seen me take it before, they're like, you know, that can lead to cancer. And I'm like, I've never heard this and I can't find anything about it. So I'm just going to keep taking them whenever I want ice cream. So yes, wow, wow. So that's really, I have no idea what the, in most cases I can, I can get to the to the, like the mechanism behind it. You know, I have like a whole series on IG that's like science versus science fiction. And I'm like, okay. when we come up with some science fiction, usually I can find the science to it and be like, this, this part makes sense. This is where this came from. But that does not, that's no sense is made from that. Like we would the, the, normally be able to produce lactase ourselves. The pill is ourselves. just an enzyme, correct, Chris? Yeah, like I think it has like some vanilla flavoring to it too, but. Uh, I think vanilla is you need to change your environment, Chris. You need to improve your diversity. You know, I got a dog. I thought that would help, but the dog won't talk science with me. So I, I've had you as a friend and that hasn't done me any good. Uh, well, I can damn near tell you, I would <laughs> never have told you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, Another so thing. Go ahead, Adam. All right. Uh, with, you know, like bloating, I think one thing that I will, you know, check up on clients or even myself is the amount of fiber that we're intaking. 
Is there a certain amount or a certain range that is too much or not enough? Um, and if you could, could you explain the two different types of fiber for our listeners, please? Sure. Um, yeah. And you know what? I think especially when we're talking about like fitness and physique and whatnot, and people are like, you know, on a cut or, you know, losing weight or, or whatever you want to call it. And they're, they're trying desperately to like not feel uncomfortably hungry that they're going to be eating a larger volume of vegetables and they're just going to, they're trying, they're trying to find volume foods or people are making the switch to, you know, what, what is a, a more nutrient dense dietary pattern. And so they're like, I'm, you know, doing whole grains and eating more fruits and veggies and like avocado toast every day. And then they feel awful. They're like, what, is there an alien growing inside of my body? Like what's going to come bursting through my chest? Like this is not okay. And they think that something's wrong. Like something's wrong with their gut health. And then they get all these messages about like, oh, you need to do a gut reset. You know, that's why you're not losing weight. It's because of your gut health, you know, whatever you got candida overgrowth. And uh, what's actually going on is just that they have increased the amount of fermentable fibers. That's where the term FODMAP comes from. Fermentable oligo dye and monosaccharides and polyols. Now, those are not all technically fibers. They're all carbohydrates but some of them are just regular sugars. So like fructose is included to so a monosaccharide, lactose is a disaccharide. And then we have these other um, larger polymers. And it's just that they are, uh, they, they're osmotically active, meaning that they attract water, they pull water into the gut and that can lead to stools, and then they're readily fermentable. And so when we're talking about the types of fibers, we're talking about, mostly we're talking about things that are soluble, and fermentable and uh, and more viscous or gel forming. So they are, they help with a, kind of giving us like comfortable bowel movements and they're considered prebiotics. They're considered energy sources for the microbes. And then we have our insoluble fibers, which are mostly non-viscous, mostly they're bulk forming and mostly they're not as fermentable. So that's something like uh, fruit and vegetable skins would be examples of the insoluble, not so fermentable types of dietary fibers. And then something like, um, you know, oatmeal, you put it in water, it gets nice and soft. So there's some more soluble fiber that's an oatmeal. And what we want really is a, is a blend of both of those. And the recommendations in the US uh, range from 25 grams a day in females to 38 grams a day for males. They're there isn't an agreed upon threshold uh, for, you know, just like humans, like we don't have a kind of like an upper limit for fiber. I've seen ranges of about 70 grams a day, you know, beyond that people start to experience some GI distress, but I've had people message me on Instagram and, you know, they're vegan and they're like, I eat hundred grams of fiber per day. And, you know, some, some tribal communities that have been studied, yeah, they're eating hundred to 120 grams, 125 grams of fiber per day. Now, one thing that those microbes can do is called energy harvesting. So they can actually convert those indigestible fibers to short chain fatty acids, and we can then absorb the short chain fatty acids. And whether you're, or like the, the, the extent to which your microbiome does that is probably variable and, uh, and, and varies from person to person as well. So there have been a couple of studies that have actually quantified, you know, fecal short chain fatty acid content or use like doubly labeled water to kind of get a sense of, uh, you know, what are you expending and ingesting? And I've seen upwards of, you know, 200 calories a day 
uh, that were harvested by the microbes in, in males. So they, you know, they might've been counting, I'm eating 2000 calories a day and, and yet their bodies are then, you know, their microbiomes are extracting an extra 200 calories. So that's where that loading is coming from. So for the general recommendation of 25 to 35, I know within the nutrition side of things like, okay, 2000 calorie diet is recommended, but like, there's a very large scale based on like people's habits. So how do you determine, uh, I guess, two questions, does fiber, does that depend on how much you eat in a day? And if so, then how do you eat X amount of fiber for 1000 calories, which I guess is like a generic number that people are like, you should have seven grams per 1000 or 15 or 12 or whatever they go by. Yeah, that's the other recommendation is it's 15 grams per 1000 calories a day. So yeah, people on the uh, upper end of caloric intake, you know, like really huge bodybuilders and athletes that might be consuming 4000 calories a day, then they may be approaching, you know, their own personal tolerable upper limit of fiber intake. And it's not really just about total fiber intake, but it's also about kind of the ratio of, of fermentable versus infermentable or non-fermentable fibers that you're taking in. So if a person was eating, you know, 60 grams of uh, fiber while they're doing say like a low FODMAP intervention, they might not experience very much gas or bloating from that. But the flip side of that is that they're not providing as many of those fermentable carbohydrates to their microbes. And we see reproducibly that, you know, going on a low FODMAP diet leads to a reduction in some of these uterate producing microbes that are just super finicky and like, they demand or they leave that they get, you know, carbohydrates. Uh, whereas a person might be, could potentially be eating, you know, 20 grams a day, uh, which isn't even, you know, close to the, to the recommended intake. And uh, it's all FODMAP type stuff. And so they're, you know, really feeling incredibly gassy and bloated. When you look at the, the, the lowest tolerable amounts of something like garlic, it's like three grams not a lot of garlic and it's not a lot of onion that could potentially make a person feel very gassy and bloated. So it is the combination of adequate fiber intake and then also finding the fiber sources that are comfortable for you and accessible to your microbes. And so that's going to be kind of a, a, an art of application for each person. Gotcha, so how would you, um... I guess, recommend an individual kind of diversify their types of fiber, or if somebody is at that lower threshold, how readily would you increase them? Would it be five, 10 grams, or just kind of, Hey, here's another food environment or selection that you should try to select from and kind of trial and error type of deal. Or what would you say with that? Yeah, it really depends on the person. You know, if I'm working with a client who's tracking and they are comfortable counting things, then we might aim for an increase of about three grams per week up until they've reached the recommended intake, kind of adjusting as needed, you know, based on, on how they're tolerating things. Uh, when I'm helping folks uh, learn about the low FODMAP uh, intervention and they're, you know, in sort of the reintroduction phase, then they might start with foods that they seem to tolerate well during testing. So biasing more toward the foods that they know that they can tolerate and then expanding slowly out maybe one food at a time with others. And then with other folks, it might be more about serving sizes. 
So if they're only eating vegetables at one meal, can we, you know, add vegetables to another meal, you know, like going by just kind of like pan size portion estimates. And really, you know, the, the, the crux here is what's going to be sustainable for a person and what do they enjoy? You know, I hate Brussels sprouts. Like there's no way that people could pay me to get any of my fiber from never had, You've never had my Brussels sprouts, so. Oh my, everyone says they're good Brussels sprouts with bacon. <laughs> my God, I make some, I, shout out to my girlfriend. We make some bomb ass honey sriracha Brussels sprouts. I'm oh, just, I, I'll I'm take your word for it. <laughs> she goes, I'll take your, I'm not gonna try. I'll just believe that they taste great. Yeah, yeah. give me a charitable to, perspective. I would hate to ruin the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Um, so, so yeah, so helping people, you know, find what's comfortable, um, find what's enjoyable, keep, just make sure that they're educated so that they understand like which, you know, what foods might cause gas and bloating and why, so that they can go out and make educated choices, you know, so that when someone says, I can diagnose and cure your dysbiosis, I can cure your IBS. Um, that they can maybe like look in another direction or at least, you know, like yellow flag that because that's just not scientifically found. Gotcha. I, know, I love the last part of like making it sustainable and enjoyable for the client because I feel like that's a, a, a missing art to a lot of coaches' uh, philosophies. Um, and I guess, you know, the other end of the spectrum, I've had clients that have come to me or we're at a, a certain caloric threshold within a reverse or a bulking phase where, hey, we're pushing five, six thousand calories. And it's like, what my recommendation literally is, is like, hey, man, you're going to just have to start eating like a kid, like get away from those nutritional dense foods and have some goldfish, some cereal, all mm -hmm. of those foods that are, you know, easily digestible. But if somebody comes to you eating 90 to 100 and they're starting to feel bloated, would you aggressively cut it down or would you kind of monitor it slowly with that intake? I think when you're uh, reducing, you don't have to be quite as conservative as when you're increasing fiber intake, because if someone is already eating 90 grams a day and they're really uncomfortable, it, to me, the priority is, you know, they've come to me to feel comfortable. And so the, the priority there, you know, is is comfort. And they're not going to be in danger if we go from 90 grams down to 70 grams. You know, if they feel constipated, which I would kind of doubt, but, you know, constipation can occur from having uh, an excess amount of uh, fiber and inadequate hydration. So, you know, that coupled with the fact that like, you know, thinking about things like nutrient timing, there's really no sense in having someone take in a really high fiber meal right before they're going to train. So yeah, like, can that have some, have like a what, you know, I'm like, when, when, if it's a person who's about to go, you know, do a marathon or something, I'm like white bread, pretzels, you know, uh, toaster, toaster waffles. So things that are like, that's what we want. Like they're really refined grains. You know, I think it's, uh, really does everyone a disservice if we stigmatize like white flour and sugar and gummy candy. No, those things are super useful. You want to talk about like super bioavailable, like, you know, it hits your bloodstream right away, tastes great, easy on your stomach. They're the bomb. I think that's the, another missing piece. I feel like, right. It's all context dependent, right? If we mm -hmm. need this or we have to hit this threshold, it's okay to have these foods that are sometimes labeled inappropriate or bad. Um, but can, let's go, I guess, in touch, uh, with, you know, the psychological aspect of things. I know we kind of spoke about it a little bit, um, before the podcast, but 
what is there or how much does this this gut microbiome impact you know the psychological well-being of individuals whatever their training goal may be mm. that's a question that we really have yet to answer especially with quality uh study design so we've got really interesting data from rodent studies because in rodents, we can raise them germ-free. That means without any microbiome at all. So they're born into a sterile environment and they live that way. And we see that they, are, they, they really fail to thrive. So they are resistant to weight gain. They have cognitive uh, abnormalities, uh, immune dysfunction. They just don't develop into normal adult rodents. That's really interesting. We can also do um, a vagectomy. So we actually sever the vagus nerve. So that's the nerve that puts out about 75% of our parasympathetic nervous system tone. It's kind of the main highway between the gut and the brain. So we sever that and we see that there are differences in the effectiveness of probiotic supplementation. So that gives some indication that, okay, there's a connection there. Uh, and the other thing that we've done with rodents is uh, fecal transplants. So we take a germ-free mouse and we transplant the bacteria, the microbiome from another mouse. And that mouse then takes on some of the behavioral characteristics or the physical characteristics of its donor. So we can approach uh, a causal relationship. The issue is that humans are not large rodents. <laughs> you know, the, the, the rodent microbiome, even when we use a, a, a humanized um, microbiome, even if we take a human sample and transplant that into a rodent, it becomes a rodent flavored human microbiome. So it is not really, a, you know, replicating the human uh, microbiome or the human experience, because I would argue that rodents don't really have moods I mean, like humans do. So we are much more complex systems. So we can gather from that that there is a relationship and that there's bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain uh, directly through the vagus nerve and neurotransmitters and also via the periphery. So there are neurotransmitters, there are postbiotics that are like precursors to neurotransmitters that can bind to receptors in the brain not including serotonin. So that's the one that people kind of like, oh, you know, seven, you know, 90% of your serotonin is produced in your gut and your gut makes you happy. And you no, know, that's gut derived serotonin. And it is a discrete pool that is produced via a different enzymatic pathway and acts in the periphery and the serotonin in your brain is produced in your brain and stays in your brain. So peripheral doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. So there's far more that we don't know uh, and, um, that's not what you see on Instagram. Though. People are like, this is, you're unhappy because you're, you need a gut reset. And I think, again, that's such, it, it's good to hear, you know, clarification because, um, people will cherry pick literature just to kind of support whatever they need to back and sell. Um, and I guess that goes into this last final question. What are your thoughts on green supplements? Because another thing that I've been told and heard, Hey, you lack, you know, your, your micronutrients, try this green supplement and your gut health will be cured. Or I've heard the opposite end of the spectrum of probiotics actually will kill the li live killing or the live living uh, bacteria in your gut. Um, and that isn't what you want. So what are your thoughts on both of those supplements? And the, the thoughts aspect of it is 
if these are not beneficial, what, what is something people could do to, to benefit themselves in an easier way? So like, I'll give you an example that I can relate to for exercising. If you're not doing all the correct movements, like your push, pull, your, your vertical and horizontal movements, you can miss out on a lot. So just simply doing a well-rounded program is going to help your overall body and health. Is there, is there, are these greens and probiotics something that would help like that? Or what is, what do you think is important for people to know? Well, shameless plug. I have an article on probiotics that I uh, wrote for precision nutrition. So if you Google like Fundero probiotics, precision nutrition, you'll probably find that. So probiotics do actually have applications uh, most commonly with diarrhea associated with antibiotics or traveling, and then also with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So they tend to reduce the severity of some of the symptoms associated with those things. But they are disease and strain specific and also even population specific. So there's not like a kitchen sink probiotic that everyone should take. And, and to your point about them killing the native microbes, well, probiotic strains are actually the same that we would find in the gut. So uh, on one hand, yes, they could potentially outcompete others, but just like your own intestinal, your, your own native microbes are competing with each other um, and they do directly kill each other if they need to. But what's most likely occurring is that if they're coming in, they might be setting up shop for a temporary amount of time. They might be passing through and interacting with your native microbes uh, um, and then just immediately exiting. They might pass through and do absolutely nothing. Uh, there have been some instances in which they've been associated with uh, SIBO, so small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or the delay of, of establishing um, a, a, your, your like pre-antibiotic microbiome. So take antibiotics and then you take a really potent probiotic that might do more harm than good in terms of delaying, you know, the establishment of your, your previous ecosystem. Um, and probiotics can also potentially be dangerous for people who have large ulcers in their intestinal tract. So if they have ulcerative colitis, then they're at greater risk of bacterial or fungal translocation into, into circulation. That's really problematic. Uh, so it's not a panacea. And if you're a healthy individual, it's probably not going to do anything at all. So it's just going to be painful to your wallet. In terms of <laughs> greens powders, so I actually have a, um, a, a graphic on greens powders also. Um, there's not a lot of information out there. I really scoured because I wrote a section on this for the RP science book, which is hopefully coming out later this year. Um, they are usually blends of powdered fruits, vegetables, herbs, and grasses, along with some digestive enzymes and maybe some probiotics. Generally, you have some sort of like proprietary superfood blend. And while they show in some cases, um, you know, okay bioavailability when we're looking at just like the powdered fruit and vegetable capsules, they don't tend to actually increase total antioxidant capacity. So like our antioxidant systems aren't changed in a meaningful way. Um, and, you know, maybe it's something akin to uh, a multivitamin. So we might be getting a, you know, a little bit of added, you know, micronutrient intake, vitamins, you know, 
B and an A and, you know, whatever things they might be adding. Um, and then if you have a whole just blend of digestive enzymes, if they're not enteric coated, they're probably not going to do much of anything. Uh, even if it is one of the few that are effective, like lactase or um, uh, alpha-galactosidase, um, if you, they're, they're, they're enzymes, they're proteins, they hit your incredibly acidic stomach acid and then they're unfolded. So, you know, they're not going to be, they're not going to be active. They're not going to be in their active forms. So you're just kind of taking, you know, maybe $30 that you spent on this green supplement for mostly things that aren't going to do anything for you. Um, except maybe be like a multivitamin. And I'm pretty sure you get that for maybe $10. So even when people are like, this is a way to get fruits and vegetables while you're on the road. I mean, there could certainly be times when you don't have access to fruits and vegetables, but I have a hard time believing that like $30 couldn't get you something because I flew around the world for most of 2019 and like $30 will buy you at least one and a half bananas at an airport. Hey, and that's all the smoke. That's what I love. That's what I'm loving about this. this is all the smoke. Hey, stop wasting your damn money. And if you're going to put your money that, why as well just go to the damn grocery store and get some fruits and vegetables and actually eat them. Um, and don't even juice them, right? Just eat the damn fruit and vegetable. They taste pretty good other than Brussels sprouts, apparently. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And those are like, yeah, and fruits and vegetables, like some of them are like prepackaged. Bananas, exactly. oranges, you know, like they come in their own thing that's like pretty stable in your bag and then you're good to go. Yeah, that just, in my opinion, that just shows you how like black and white the fitness industry can be. It's either one extreme or the totally other extreme. Um, and we definitely have to have it content dependent and more importantly, enjoyable, sustainable, maintainable for our current goals. So Dr. Fendera, this was great. Um, for our listeners that don't know where to find you, um, could you let them know where they can find your articles, Instagram, YouTube, whatever you are on the networks? Yes. Um, so I don't have my own podcast, but I have many podcasts listed for my, my, I've been a guest on many. I can't make sentences today. Um, so vitaminphdnutrition.com would be the place to go for uh, all of the podcasts that I've been on and other educational resources, or if people want to get in touch for consulting, coaching, speaking opportunities. Uh, and then BTG Comprehensive Coaching uh, is the website that I run with Shannon Beer on all things coaching and uh, Vitamin PhD on Instagram and Facebook. And that's really all I have. I still have to get like a Twitter or TikTok or something. I'm way behind. Uh, no, that's, I'm, I'm resistant on the TikTok and I feel like now I'm that old man because I remember Vine and Vine was so good, but TikTok, mm -hmm. uh, I'm just like, I, I can't do it because one, I coach middle and high school basketball players and that's all they're on. I'm like, no, I don't want to see you guys doing all your nonsense. Oh yeah, true, true. That's like, you know, if you're like on Tinder or something and then like your students see you, it's just like, yeah, oh. It's just a mess. And now I feel old as hell, but dude, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But Dr. Fendera, we appreciate your time. That was all the smoke on strength of physique. Uh, we'll definitely have to hopefully have you back on when, you know, more research is kind of coming out. Um, and as more questions come our way with gut health and the gut microbiome. So take another drink. Um, if you have any questions for her, you know where to reach out to her. And Dr. Fender, we thank you so much for your time again. You're very welcome. And thank you for having me. Perfect.